You are about to enjoy a presentation recorded at the 2023 Michigan Conference Camp Meeting held at Cedar Lake, Michigan. We pray that the Lord will bless you as you listen. Father in heaven, we come before your awesome throne and we come boldly because we come in the name of Jesus. And we know that because Jesus is our representative in in heaven, he cleanses our prayers and you receive them. We ask that as we open your holy word, that your Holy Spirit will be with us to open our understanding, to soften our hearts, and to enable us to share the wonderful message that you have given the Seventh-day Adventist Church. We thank you for the privilege of prayer and thank you for answering because we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. I'm sure we're probably all acquainted with the story in the book of Job. This book describes in the first two chapters the intense physical, psychological, and spiritual suffering of this pious man, whom the Lord himself said was a righteous man, perfect, who departed from evil. As we know from the story, Job lost everything in a matter of minutes. You say, how do we know it was in a matter of minutes? Because the Bible tells us that when one messenger came with the bad news, the other messenger came immediately after. And so within a short period of time, Job lost everything except his life. He lost all of his possessions. He lost all of his servants. He lost all of his children. He lost his health. He lost the support of his wife. He lost the support of his best friends. Chapter 29 tells us that the nations that admired him turned against him and spit in his face. And it appeared like his best friend, God, had also forsaken him. From chapter 3 through chapter 38, Job is crying out to God, asking God why these calamities are coming upon him. And God's answer is silence. That is until chapter 38. But from chapter 37, chapter 3 to chapter 37, God keeps silence. Now, Job, in his experience, had long periods of depression and despair. He was in the valley. But in these chapters, we also find mountaintop experiences that Job had, in spite of his suffering. Many times he felt like throwing in the towel and calling it quits. But then... He would express his faith, his courage, and his trust in God. Now this evening, we are going to study one particular mountaintop experience that Job had. 
And that experience is found in chapter 14 and verses 7 through 12. Job 14 and verses 7 through 12. Now, before we read these verses, I want to mention that there are four metaphors in these verses. The first metaphor is that of cutting down a tree. The second metaphor is the receding of the waters of the sea. The third metaphor is that of the drying up of a river. And the fourth metaphor we're all very well acquainted with is that of going to sleep and waking up. So we're going to find in this passage four metaphors, the metaphor of the tree, the metaphor of the drying up of a sea, the metaphor of the drying up of a river, and the metaphor of going to sleep and waking up. So let's read the passage and see if we can find all four metaphors. It says there in verse 7, For there is hope for a tree. There's the first metaphor. There is hope for a tree. If it is cut down, by the way, cut down is a metaphor for death. So all of these metaphors have to do with death and resurrection. For there is hope for a tree. If it is cut down, then it will what? Sprout again. And that its tender shoots will not cease. Though its root may grow old in the earth, and its stump may die in the ground, yet at the scent of water it will bud and bring forth branches like a plant. So here you have a metaphor that is describing cutting down, which is death, and sprouting again, which represents the resurrection. And then in verse 10, we find these words, But man dies and is laid away. Indeed, he breathes his last. Where is he? Well, he was cut down like a tree. <laughs> and we're going to notice that he dried up like the sea. He dried up like a river. He went to sleep. Let's continue reading once again verse 10. But man dies and is laid away. Indeed, he breathed his last, and where is he? Now comes the second metaphor. As water disappears from the sea, that's death, and a river become parched, becomes parched and dried up, there you have the third metaphor. So, that is in a similar way, man lies down, that's referring to death, and does not rise again. Now, if we stop there, it would be very depressing, wouldn't it? Because verse 12 says, so, in the same way as the metaphors, man lies down, that is, he dies, and does not rise. But praise the Lord that the passage does not end there. The next word is a key word, the word till. Does not rise again till. Now, what point of time does the word till mark? 
It says, till the heavens are no more. Now, when is it that the heavens will be no more? It certainly cannot be after God makes a new heavens and a new earth, because at that time, the heavens and the new earth will exist. This is actually a reference to the second coming of Jesus Christ, because at the second coming of Christ, Ellen White states in early writings, page 41, that the sun, the moon, and the stars will be moved out of their places. And she's commenting on Matthew chapter 24, verse 29, where it says that the sun will not give its light, neither will the moon, neither will the stars of heaven. It will appear like the heavens are no more. And that's the reason why during the millennium, this planet will be in darkness because there will be no sun, moon, and stars. They will have been moved out of their places. Revelation chapter 6 and verse 14 describes it in a different way. It says that the heavens rolled up like a scroll. Well, if the heavens are rolled up, the sun, moon, and stars are not giving their light. And so what I want us to notice here is that uh, according to the passage, man does not rise till the second coming of Jesus Christ. And then notice what the text continues saying. Till the heavens are no more, they will not what? What does that refer to, that metaphor? That's the fourth metaphor. Awaken means to resurrect. So it says, they will not awake, nor be what? Roused from their sleep. What does sleep represent? Sleep represents death. And so you have the fourth metaphor, which is going to sleep and waking up. And then Job, who at this point is alive, cries out to God. He's suffering intensely, physically, mentally, spiritually, psychologically. He would like to be laid in the grave. And so he says in verse 13, Oh, that you would hide me in the grave, that you would conceal me until your wrath is past, that you would appoint me a set time and remember me. By the way, the word there, grave, is the Hebrew word sheol. The equivalent word in the New Testament is Hades. It basically refers to the place where the dead go. It's not hell. It is the grave, where it is translated correctly here. Also in 1 Corinthians 15, the word Hades is translated, O grave, where is your victory? And so what Job is crying out to God for, he says, I want to rest from all of this suffering that I'm going through, but remember me, please, if I go to rest. And then in verse 14, we find the following words. If a man dies, that's the same as sleeping, right? Shall he live again? In other words, is he going to wake up? All the days of my hard service, I will wait. Till my, now some words that I want you to remember here, till my change comes. You shall call, call him from where? All those who are in their graves will what? Will hear his voice and come forth. 
John 5, 28 and 29. So Job says, you shall call and I will what? Answer you. That's the resurrection. You shall desire the work of your hands. Now, there are several concepts here that I want us to take a look at. First, the word change. Job says, all the days of my hard service, I will wait till my change comes. That word is used 12 times in the Old Testament. It's not a very common word. And nine of the 12 times, it has to do with a change of garments, a change of clothing. Let me give you one example. There are 12, we're not gonna read all 12, but Genesis 45 verse 22 uses the identical word. Speaking about Joseph giving to his brothers after they found out that he was their brother, he gave to all of them, to each man, changes of garments. It's the same word in the book of Job, changes of garments. But to Benjamin, he gave 300 pieces of silver and five, once again the word, changes of garments. Now, the question is, what does the changing of garments mean? What does it represent? Before we answer that question, I want you to notice that there are three elements in this passage that I want to underline. First of all, death and resurrection are compared to sleeping and waking up. That was clear, right? Secondly, at the resurrection, there will be a change of what? A change of garments, because it's speaking about the resurrection. And that change takes place when? When the heavens are no more, which is which moment? At the second coming of Jesus Christ. Now go with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verses 51 to 55. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verses 51 through 55. This is a passage well known. It's read very frequently at memorial services and at funerals, along with 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. This is what it says. The Apostle Paul writes, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all what? Sleep. Is that the same metaphor that we found in Job 14? Yes. So it says, We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be what? Huh. Is that in Job chapter 14 as well? Yes, we will all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. In that, that means the batting of an eye. How long does it take you for to do this? That's how fast it's going to be. In the twinkling of an eye. When? Ah, at the second coming, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised. How? incorruptible. That's the waking up. And we shall be, once again, here's the word, we shall be changed. For this corruptible must what? That is the Greek word enduo, which if you check it out in the New Testament, it has to do with putting on clothes. Was that concept in Job chapter 14? Absolutely. So what is it that Job wanted to put on? Let's continue reading. It says, for this corruptible must be clothed with incorruption, and this mortal must be clothed with immortality. 
So when this corruptible has been clothed with incorruption and this mortal has been clothed with immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? Let me ask you, is this a message that the world needs to hear? A depressed world? A world that is characterized by death and depression and no hope? We have the message that the world needs, and we need to proclaim it with boldness. Undoubtedly, we know people who are depressed, who don't see any future for themselves. In other words, they believe that probably death would be the best, and that's the end. But we have a wonderful message for them, and that is that Jesus is coming, and that He is going to clothe us with incorruption and immortality. He's going to wake us up if we should die before He comes. And if we're alive, He's going to change us in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. Now, another concept that I want you to notice here, it says, all the days of my hard service, I will wait till my change comes. You shall call and I will answer you. You shall desire the work of your hands. So the question is, what is meant by the work of your hands? What is the work of God's hands? Let's go to Isaiah 64 and verse 8, which, by the way, was referred to this evening by the dear lady that had our scripture reading and our prayer. It says there in Isaiah 64, verse 8, But now, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay, and you are potter. And now listen, and all we are the what? The work of of your hand. So in Job 14, when we are told that God desires the work of his hand, what is it referring to? It is referring to us. He desires us. He desires the work of his hand. Now, the word desire is the third concept that I want us to notice in this passage. It is used only five times in the Old Testament, this word desire. There are other uh, words that are translated desire, but this one is a very unique word. The word desire does not express the intensity of the meaning of the word. Let me give you a couple of examples where this word is used elsewhere in the Old Testament. You know, Jacob was coming back to his home from the home of Laban. And of course, Laban caught up to him because Jacob was taking some of the things that Laban thought were his. And Laban says something very interesting to Jacob. And I love the way that the King James translates this. Genesis 31 and verse 30 expresses the intensity of the word desire. Laban says to Jacob, Thou Soar longest for home. Isn't that nice? Thou soar longest. That's the same word desire. In other words, I know that you're homesick. Notice another use of the word. And this, in this word, you have three synonymous expressions. Psalm 84 and verse 2. 
Psalm 84 and verse 2. Here the psalmist is crying out to God and uses three synonymous expressions. He says, My soul longeth, that's the word, desire. My soul longeth, yea, even what? Fainteth for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh crieth out for the living God. So the word desire means a real desire, a longing for the desire of his hands. If you remember, in our study last night, we considered the dialogue of Jesus with the Sadducees about the resurrection. We saw that even though Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were dead, when the Lord appeared to Moses in the burning bush, for God, they were what? They were alive. Because in Luke chapter 20, it says, all live to him. In other words, for what us is hope, the hope of the resurrection, the hope of eternal life, for God is already a done deal. You can take it to the bank. You can trust his promises. You know, you, you don't say, well, you know, Am I going to resurrect someday? I hope so. For God, it's a done deal if we are in Christ. Let me read you again the two statements that I read yesterday, last evening. The first is in Manuscript Releases, volume 14, pages 22 and 23. Ellen White is here explaining what the expression I am is, the name that God designated himself by. I am means an eternal presence. The past, present, and future are alike to God. Are they alike for us? No. The past is past, the present is here, and the future hasn't arrived yet. But Ellen White states here, past, present, and future, are alike to God. He sees the most remote events of past history and the far distant future with as clear a vision as we do those things that are transpiring daily before our eyes. In the other statement, Ellen White is commenting directly on the experience of Jesus with the Sadducees in the Desire of Ages, page 606, she wrote, God counts the things that are not as though they were. He sees the end from the beginning and beholds the result of his work as though it were now accomplished. The precious death from Adam down to the last saint who dies will hear the voice of the Son of God and will come forth from the grave to immortal life. God will be their God, and they shall be his people. There will be a close and tender relationship. I guess you could say that was the desire of the book of Job. There will be a close and tender relationship between God and the risen saints, mainly from my perspective, because for God, it's already a done deal. The quotation continues saying, This condition, which is anticipated in his purpose, he beholds as if it were already existing, the dead 
live unto him. What a blessed hope we have. Folks, what Jesus desires most is to be with the work of his hands. What the Father desires most is for us to be with him and for him to be with us. Go with me to John chapter 13 and verses 36 to 38. Here, Jesus is going to give the disciples a news item that was going to shake them to the core. He was going to tell them, I'm leaving. Let's read John 13, 36 to 38. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, Where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you shall follow me afterward. Well, Peter didn't like that. And so he says, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for your sake. Jesus answered him, Will you lay down your life for my sake? Most assuredly, I say to you, the rooster shall not crow till you have denied me three times. So Jesus says to Peter and the disciples, I'm leaving. The disciples had spent three and a half years with Jesus. They could not conceive of living without Jesus for a single second. And now Jesus is saying, I'm leaving. And they're thinking, how can we exist without the presence of Jesus? They were rattled. And Jesus knew that they were rattled. Notice that they were not concerned about the place where Jesus was going to go. They were concerned about him leaving them. Peter says, I want to go where you're going. And I don't want to go later. I want to go now. I want to be with you now. Jesus knew that they were shaken. And so then we have the famous verses of the very next chapter. Sometimes we read those verses and we don't consider the context in which Jesus gave the famous verses of John 14 and verses 1 to 3. Verse 1 says, Let not your heart be troubled. Why would he say, let not your heart be troubled? Trouble over what? I'm leaving. I'm not going to be with you anymore. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. Now that word troubled is very interesting. Their hearts were in turmoil. Do you remember uh, the pool of Bethesda? It was believed that when the waters were stirred, that the first person who jumped in would be healed? Well, the word stirred there is the same word that is used here, troubled. Their hearts were stirred. Their hearts were troubled because Jesus was leaving. It's the same word, by the way, that's John 5, verse 4. It's the same word that's used in Matthew 2, verse 3, where the heart of Herod is troubled when he hears the report from the wise men that the Messiah has been born. He's deeply troubled in his heart. And it's the same word that is used in Mark chapter 6, 49 through 50, where Jesus comes to the disciples walking on water, and they're scared, they're troubled, because they see this man walking on the waters, who then identifies himself as Jesus, and then their hearts are not troubled anymore. That's when Peter says, hey, I want to walk on the water too. Jesus says, come. 
And Peter gets on the water and he starts walking on the water. Wow! So he looks back and says, you guys aren't walking on the water. And when he turns back, a wave hides Jesus from his sight and he begins to sink. So their hearts were deeply troubled and Jesus knew it. And so then we have verses 2 and 3. And there's something that many times we miss about verses 2 and 3. Jesus says, in my Father's house are many mansions. You know, some people think that Jesus went to heaven to do some heavenly contracting. That he went to heaven to build mansions. The text tells us that the mansions were there when Jesus said it. In my Father's house are many mansions. That word mansions is the Greek word monet, which refers to permanent dwellings. Not dwellings for a visit, not an Airbnb, but a permanent dwelling. So you could translate, in my Father's house are permanent dwellings. Who do you suppose those dwellings are for? For us, for the work of his hands. And then he says, if it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. What is Jesus doing in heaven now? He's preparing a place for us. Does that mean that he's planting trees and building houses? No. He prepares the place by his work in the holy place and the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary. You see, he has to perform those duties before he can come again. And so Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you. And now comes the key portion. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. I love that. And receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Jesus wants to be with us. We are the work of his hands. Remember, he's a human being. And Jesus, as a human being, loves human beings. Of course, Jesus is God as well. And as God, he loves human beings. But as a human, there's a special link between him and us. Turn with me to John chapter 14 and verse 23. Constantly this thought of him wanting to be with the work of his hands is found in the New Testament. Notice John 14, verse 23. Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our monet and make our permanent dwelling with him. Same identical Greek word. We will make our permanent dwelling with those who love us. On the way to the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus raised that powerful prayer to his Father, which is found in John chapter 17. And at the very climax of his prayer, in verse 24, Jesus said to his Father, Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am that they may behold my glory which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. He's saying, Father, I want those that you have given me to be with me 
where I am. In John chapter 17 and verse 20, just four verses before, we're told that that prayer was not only concerning the disciples, the prayer was for all believers of all time. It says in John 17, verse 20, Jesus speaking, I do not pray for these alone, that means for the disciples alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. And then, of course, Jesus gathered the disciples along with others on Mount Olivet, the Mount of Olives, east of Jerusalem, and he departed to heaven what the disciples were dreading. Let's read about it in Acts chapter 1 and verses 9 through 11. Acts chapter 1 and verses 9 through 11. Now when he had spoken these things, while they watched, while the disciples watched, he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly, that's an interesting Greek word. It's the word atenizo. It doesn't mean just looking. It means gazing, having the eyes fixed in heaven. It's the same word that is used when Stephen was being stoned. It says that he gazed at heaven and saw the Son of Man at the right hand of God. And so they're gazing. They're gazing until he disappears from their sight. And so it says, and while they looked steadfastly toward heaven, as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will so come in like manner as you saw him go to heaven. The same thing that Jesus had said. He said, I will come again and receive you to myself. Now go with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verses 15 through 17. I want you to catch this point. He wants to be with the desire of his hands. He sore longs to be with the desire of his hands, with, with the work of his hands and with his desire. It says in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 15, For this we say to you by the will of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. Those who are dead, in other words. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to what? To meet the Lord in the air. And now comes the key. And thus, we shall always be with the Lord. Are you catching the gist of all of these texts? He wants to be with us. We are the desire of his hand. The question is, do we desire him as much as he desires us? Or are we so caught up in our daily routine, in our houses, in our cars, and our money, and our 401ks, and our adult toys, that we have very little time to even think about him because we're so busy? Do we desire, do we soar long to be with him 
as he so long desires to be with us. Now, what will the place be like where he's going to take us? Well, let's go through a list. The Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 9, But as it is written, I has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. What is the place going to be like? Well, the street of the city is made of pure gold. The city square is made of pure gold. We will drink crystal clear sweet water that flows from the throne of God. We will eat from a tree that produces its fruit every month, which will refurbish our life every month. The city, the foundations of the city are composed of precious stones. The lion and the lamb will sit together. We will be able to converse with all of the great heroes that are mentioned in the Bible. Adam, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Moses, Ruth, Elijah, Esther, Mary, Peter, Paul, whoever your favorite is, will be able to reminisce about their experiences and learn from them. We will recognize our friends and our relatives that we lost through death. I want to read you a statement in the book Heaven by Ellen White, page 40. This is a remarkable statement. Our personal identity is preserved in the resurrection though not the same particles of matter or material substance as went into the grave. In other words, God doesn't have to recuperate every little particle of matter that composed our body because he's going to give us a much finer material. He can make us what we were with finer material, which is incorruptible and immortal material. Notice what it continues saying. The wondrous works of God are a mystery to man. The spirit, the character of man, is returned to God. Now, I'm not going to dwell on that. But if you go to uh, some TV website, Secrets Unsealed website, the spirit is more than just the breath. The spirit is the life record that God keeps in heaven of every person who has ever lived, without missing a detail. So when he resurrects from us from the dead... He's not only going to create our body, to recreate our body. He's not only going to give that body the breath of life, but he's going to give that person the identity that he saved in the heavenly records. So that when we resurrect, I will be Stephen Paul Bohr. Unless the Lord is going to give me a new name, which the Bible says. So it says, the spirit, the character of man is returned to God, there to be preserved. In the resurrection, every man will have his own character. God in his own time will call forth the dead, giving again the breath of life and bidding the dry bones live. The same form will come forth, but it will be free from disease and every defect. It lives again, bearing the same individuality of features so that friend will recognize friend. 
There is no law of God in nature which shows that God gives back the same identical particles of matter which compose the body before death. God shall give the righteous dead a body that will please him. And then she continues this statement, referring to the Apostle Paul who spoke about a kernel being deposited in the earth and dying and then coming forth. This is uh, uh, in the same source. Paul illustrates this subject by the kernel of grain sown in the field. The planted kernel decays. I know this for a fact. I have a garden in my backyard, small garden, and that's literally true. The seed dies. But now notice, but there comes forth a new kernel. The natural substance in the grain that decays is never raised as before, but God giveth it a body as it hath pleased him. And now I love this. A much finer material will compose the human body, for it is a new creation, a new birth. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. We will be able to see our friends and our relatives that were torn from us from, from the dead, from, from the living. We will be able to speak of the great heroes of the past and the heroines of the past. And we'll have an eternity to get all caught up. That's going to be wonderful. We're going to be able to travel to other worlds and tell them about the great story of redemption. Imagine that Ellen White says that there's myriads of worlds out there that God created before this one, with inhabitants there. And we'll be able to travel to those worlds. We will hear the harmonious and melodious music sung by millions of voices in the heavenly choirs. Our bodies will never get sick, and they will never wrinkle. Hallelujah. Every month we will go to worship before the Lord, and we will go every week to worship before Him. Wow! What a place! But if there was nothing of that, it would be worthwhile being there. Because Jesus will be there. Ellen White states that heaven is Christ. And so even if there weren't all of these fringe benefits, if you please, and Jesus is there, it would be worthwhile being there with him. Notice Revelation chapter 21 and verses 2 through 4. Revelation 21 and verses 2 through 4. And notice the same theme that we're covering now. He desires the work of his hands. He sore longs for the work of his hands. It says there in Revelation 21 and verse 2, Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is what? There it is again, with men. And he will dwell with them. And they shall be his people. God himself will be with them. I think he wants us to know that he's going to be with us. God himself will be with them and be their God, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, 
for the former things have passed away. What is the name of the city that we're going to visit? The New Jerusalem. But do you know that it's going to have a new name? Really? A new name? Go with me to Ezekiel chapter 48 and verses 30 through 35. Ezekiel 48 verses 30 to 35. The same thought all over again. It says, These are the exits of the city. On the north side, measuring 4,500 cubits, the gates of the city shall be named after the tribes of Israel. The three gates northward, one gate for Reuben, one gate for Judah, and one gate for Levi. On the east side, 4,500 cubits, three gates, one gate for Joseph, one gate for, Benj for Benjamin, and one gate for Dan. On the south side, measuring 4,500 cubits, three gates, one gate for Simeon, one gate for Issachar, and one gate for Zebulun. On the west side, 4,500 cubits with their three gates, one gate for Gad, one gate for Asher, and one gate for Naphtali. All the way around shall be 18,000 cubits, and the name of the city from that day shall be, The Lord is there. <laughs> What's going to be the name of the New Jerusalem? The Lord is there. That's what's important, folks. Jesus is there. Do we want to be there? Do we soar long to be there? In this world, folks, of division, political, religious, etc., we need to long for a better world. We need to long to be with Jesus where there's going to be peace, eternal peace, not an artificial peace, like politicians talk about, but real peace inside and out. The disciple that Jesus loved was, of course, John. And the reason why the Bible says that Jesus loved John is because John was the one who was closest to Jesus. Notice how Ellen White described what it means that John was the lo beloved disciple. This is in Acts of the Apostles, page 539. The Savior's affection for the beloved disciple was returned with all the strength of ardent devotion, much more than any of the other disciples. John had an ardent devotion to Christ. John clung to Christ as the vine clings to the stately pillar. For his master's sake, he braved the dangers of the judgment hall and lingered about the cross. And at the tidings that Christ had risen, he hastened to the sepulcher in his zeal, outstripping even the impetuous Peter. He was the closest to Jesus of all of the disciples. He enjoyed being in his presence. And that's why he's called the disciple that Jesus loved. We're told by Christian history and confirmed by Ellen White that during the reign of the emperor Domitian, John was cast into a cauldron of boiling oil. Domitian wanted to get rid of him. But 
Christian history, as well as Ellen White, confirm that he was protected as the three young men were protected in the fiery furnace. And so Domitian exiled him to the island of Patmos. And it was there that John had the vision that we find in the book of Revelation. There he saw the struggles, trials, tribulations, and persecutions that the church would face during the Christian era. He beheld the climactic struggle between the faithful and the beast, his image, his mark, and the number of his name. He beheld God's people under a death decree and the glorious deliverance of the remnant by God. And when the book comes to an end, Jesus says, I come quickly, to which John gave a hearty amen. The book ends with John saying, Amen. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. He longed to be with Jesus. Do we long to be with Jesus? The Apostle Paul was in prison for the second time in Rome in the Mamertine prison. It was a cold, dark, humid, and lonely place. He, know, he knew that the time of his martyrdom had arrived. However, Paul was not discouraged or depressed because he knew in whom he had believed. Let's read from 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verses 6 through 8. 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verses 6 through 8. Here Paul expresses his feelings as he is in prison about to be martyred. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering. And the time of my departure, the word departure simply is a, is a metaphor for death, the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day, not to me only, but also all those who have believed his appearing. All those who have taught his appearing. All those who have preached his appearing. All those who have waited for his appearing. No, all those who have what? Loved his appearing. But to love his appearing, you have to what? You have to love him. I spent my childhood years in the countries of Colombia and Venezuela. My father was called to be um, a missionary, and uh, he went first of all to Colombia to learn Spanish. We spent one year there, and then we went to Venezuela where I spent the next 10 years of my life. I lived in Latin America from the time I was four till the time that I was 14. And when I was 14, I did not know how to read or write English because I'd studied all my primary education, my elementary education in Spanish. And so my parents said, it's time to send Steve where he can learn to read 
and write English. So let's ship him off to Wisconsin Academy because my parents had uh, relatives that lived in Milwaukee. In fact, his father was actually born in Milwaukee. And so they shipped me off. They stayed in Venezuela. Now, my mother had always been a stay-at-home mom while us kids were growing up. She never worked outside the home. And so I had a special attachment with my mother. You know, my older sister, she says, she says I'm my father's favorite daughter. And I say to my sister, yes, but I'm my father's only son. <laughs> I know my, my sister's watching right now, and she's probably snickering because she told me that she's watching these sermons. But, you know, the bottom line is that my mother had a special attachment to me because I was the only boy in the family. Never did I spend more than two or three days at a Camp Rie where my mother wasn't. And here, they shipped me off to Wisconsin Academy, which is way, way far from Venezuela. And I'll tell you, I spent many days crying. There's nothing wrong with men crying. I wasn't a man. I was 14 years old. <laughs> so I guess you could excuse the crying, right? I probably would have cried as an adult, too. And so I spent an entire year at Wisconsin Academy in the first semester getting F's. And then it went to D's. And then it went to C's when I learned to read and write English. And so anyway, about a year afterwards, my mother wrote a letter and she says, I am coming to Wisconsin Academy. Wow! How do you think I felt? Whoo! You know, my heart beat faster. I was excited. My mother is coming. Why was I excited? Because I had spent time with her. I loved her. That's right. I loved her appearing because I loved her. So the day, you know, I marked off the days on the calendar even. I crossed off the days. Three days, two days, one day. Finally, we went to the Madison Airport. At that time, you could go out and watch the planes land. And she flew from Chicago in a DC-3. <laughs> Many of you know what a DC-3 is. <laughs> it's a prop airplane, small. And so, you know, I stretched out my neck and I looked into the distance when they announced that the flight from Chicago was coming. And the the aircraft came down and landed, and uh, I watched as it moved to the terminal. At that time, you had to go down the stairs. There was no, no way to get into the terminal on uh, the ramp. And so, you know, as the door to the plane opened, I was looking uh, at, at the door to see when my mother would appear. And passengers started coming out and coming out, and she didn't come out. And finally, almost last, there I saw my mother coming down the stairs. Oh, I said, I got tears in my eyes. I said, oh, how wonderful. I so longed for your coming. And now you are here. The embrace was great. Why did I love my mother's appearing? Because I loved her. And why did I love her? Because I had spent quality time with her. We cannot love Jesus when we spend most of our time 
texting on our cell phone. We cannot love Jesus if we're spending most of our time watching television, unless it's some TV and Amazing Facts and the other Adventist channels, the Hope Channel. That's okay. If we don't spend time with Jesus in the study of His Word, in prayer, and in boldly speaking to others about Jesus, you know we become stronger in our relationship with Jesus when we tell others. When we verbalize our experience with Christ, our faith and our trust in Jesus becomes much stronger. This reminds me of the experience of Enoch, first man to be taken to heaven from among the living. Why was he taken there? Genesis chapter 5, verses 22 through 24. Genesis chapter 5, verses 22 through 24. After he begot Methuselah, Enoch what? Ah. Do you know what walk means when it's used figuratively? It doesn't mean that, that Enoch literally was walking and Jesus was walking next to his side. Whenever the Bible uses the word walk in a metaphorical sense, it's talking about your behavior or your conduct. He who says that he is in Christ must walk as he walked. It has to do with conduct or behavior. And so it says Enoch walked with God 300 years. And he lived 365. So when he had his first son, Ellen White says that the special attachment to his son led him to understand better the relationship between God as Father and him. And it says in verse 23, so all the days of Enoch were 365 years. And it says again, and Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. In other words, God says to Enoch, you know, you're walking with me so closely, you don't have any attachment to the earth anymore. So let's just come up here and we'll literally and personally walk down the street of gold. But Hebrews ex uses another expression to speak about Enoch. Notice Hebrews 11 and verse 5. Genesis says he walked with God, but now we're going to notice what that means by comparing the book of Hebrews. By faith Enoch was taken away, that he did not see death, and was not found, because God had taken him. And before he was taken, he had this testimony that he, what? He pleased God. His life pleased God. God took him because he had nothing more to do on planet Earth. His heart was bonded fully and completely with the heart of Jesus. Now the big question is, how do we gain this kind of experience with Jesus? Go with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 18. 2 Corinthians 3 verse 18, uh, and I'm reading from the New English Translation. It says, And we all, with unveiled faces, reflecting the glory of the Lord, are being what? Transformed. The Greek word transformed is 
metamorpho, where we get the word metamorphosis from. What is a metamorphosis? <laughs> you know, when I was a child, I collected butterflies. I became very proficient at collecting butterflies, almost professional. In fact, Wisconsin Academy, if you go to the biology department, I donated my butterflies when I went back to South America to study college. And I was able to observe the development of the butterfly from the time that the mother butterfly laid the eggs on a leaf, and then the egg broke, and a little tiny caterpillar came out, ate from the leaves of the tree, grew into a big caterpillar, and then enclosed itself in a chrysalis or in a cocoon, and then in a short period of time, lo and behold, a caterpillar doesn't come out, comes out a butterfly. That's a metamorphosis, a radical change. So the Apostle Paul is saying, by beholding Christ, we are being changed into the same image from one glory to another. It doesn't happen overnight. It's a process as we dedicate our time to Jesus. So it says, transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, which is from the Lord, who is the Spirit. The Holy Spirit makes that transformation in our lives. Ellen White wrote in Sons and Daughters of God, page 337, by beholding Christ, by talking of Him. I noticed, by what? By beholding Christ, by talking of Him, by beholding the loveliness of His character, we become changed. Change from glory to glory. And what is glory? asks Ellen White. Character. And he becomes changed from character to character. Thus we see that there is a work of purification that goes on by beholding Jesus. How do we have the experience of Enoch? By beholding Jesus. By talking of Him. By speaking of Him. By speaking to Him. We grow each day. So we need to be very careful about what we dedicate our time to, our eyes and our ears to, because what we behold, that is what we become. It's a law, a psychological law, just as what we eat physically makes us what we are physically, what we eat spiritually makes us what we are spiritually. Now you say, Pastor Bohr, you know, the title of this sermon is Seven Times Purified. Do you notice here that it says, thus we see that there is a work of purification that goes on by beholding Jesus? Go with me to Psalm 12 and verse 6. Psalm 12 and verse 6. Here it's speaking about the Bible, the Word of God. The words of the Lord are what? Pure words. How did they become pure? Ah, and how pure are they? Like silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified what? The Bible has, why does it say seven, do you think? The Bible is absolutely what? Pure. It says seven times. By the way, have you ever been to the supermarket and you're going to buy a salad and it says three times washed, ready to eat? 
I'm sure you have. The Word of God is seven times purified. It's absolutely pure. But the question is, how does the purity of God's Word translate into purity in our hearts? Seven times. Psalm 119, verse 9 and 11. Psalm 119 and verses 9 and 11. How can a young man, listen young people, how can a young man cleanse his way? What does the word way mean? Behavior, conduct, has to do with walking. How can a young man cleanse his way? What's the answer? By taking heed according to your word. Notice verse 11. Your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. So the pure word planted in the heart purifies us seven times, so to speak. You know, sometimes I hear young people say, I don't see anything wrong with going to the movie theater to see a movie. Let me say, there's nothing that Hollywood produces today that's worth watching. No, it's just, just a fact. And you know what I tell them? When they say, I don't see anything wrong with it, I say, I'm going to pray that the Lord will fix your eyes. And then I say, could you invite Jesus Christ to sit next to you when you're watching that movie that glorifies immorality, spiritualism, lying, disloyalty, could you invite Jesus to sit next to you? Do you think he would delight in what you're watching? Of course not. The answer is obvious. What we watch makes us what we are. You know, some people say to me, you're so heavenly minded, you're no earthly good. And I say, is it just perhaps that you're so earthly minded that you're no heavenly good? Because the opposite is also true. Now here comes the conclusion because time is just about up. When Jesus went to the cross, what, he, what, what was he thinking of? <laughs> Being with us. Go with me to Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. Hebrews 12, verses 1 through 3. Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses... Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. So what are we supposed to do? Lay aside every weight and the sin that easily ensnares us. Now how do we do that? Notice verse 2. What's the secret? Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. And now notice this who for the joy that was set before him. What did he do? Endured the cross. Why did Jesus endure the cross? For the joy that was what? That was set before him. What is that? We're coming to it in a moment. He endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Isaiah 53, 10 and 11 has a similar expression. Isaiah 53, 10 and 11. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. That is, the Father put Jesus to grief. 
When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall what? What will be the result? He shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days. And the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. That is in the hand of Jesus. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. What is the labor of his soul? You and me, his people. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. And then I end by reading a statement from the writings of Ellen White, where she explains what the joy that was set before him is and what it means that the labor of his soul satisfies him. She wrote, It was for the joy that was set before him that he, notice, that he might bring many sons unto glory. What was the joy that was set before him? That he might bring many sons unto glory, that he endured the cross and despised the shame. And inconceivably great as was the sorrow and the shame, yet greater is the joy and the glory. He looks upon the redeemed, renewed in his own image, every heart bearing the perfect impress of the divine, every face reflecting the likeness of their king. He beholds in them the result of the travail of his soul, and he is satisfied. Are you making plans to be there? If you're making plans to be there, you want to stand? I'm going to have a word of prayer. I already made my reservation. I hope that you've made yours. But remember, what we do in our daily lives will determine if we're there. Yes, Jesus died for our sins. Yes, Jesus justifies us. But Jesus not only wants us to experience justification, he wants us to experience victory over sin. Not through our efforts, but through the power of the Holy Spirit. He does the work. We don't do it. But he wants to do it in us, not only in terms of forgiving us, but empowering us to obey him and to proclaim him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you because you long to be with us. Thank you because you were willing to send your beloved son Jesus to suffer so that someday, as a result of his work, we could be in heaven with you and with him, singing glory and praises to your holy name. What a wonderful father you are. What a wonderful son, Jesus, you have. Thank you, Father, for all that you do for us. We ask that you will come into our minds and into our hearts, and you will put our focus where it should be, not on the passing things of this world, but on the eternal kingdom and on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Thank you, Father, for having been with us, for answering our prayer, for we ask it in the wonderful, beautiful name of Jesus our Savior. Amen. Amen. To listen to more of these presentations, you may visit the audio archives at misda.org slash audio2023 or search for Michigan Conference Camp Meeting wherever you get your podcast.